Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. Hi, I'm Laura Janti, and I'm a graduate student in physics. We'll be your hosts for today's installment of Veritalk. Today we'll be discussing the Kumbha Mela, a mass Hindu pilgrimage that's currently underway in India, with a PhD candidate in South Asian Studies. At the end of the show, we'll ask our guest to share his expertise on something else that is quite popular in the subcontinent, Indian soap operas. On the 10th of February, while we were shivering out from a blizzard here in Boston, the world's largest human gathering on a single day ever was underway across the world in the Indian city of Allahabad. More than 30 million people gathered at the confluence of the Ganges and Yamuna rivers to take a holy dip on that auspicious day. Over the course of the 55 days which the Kumbha Mela runs, the festival expects more than 100 million people to visit, and most people spend at least one night in an enormous pop-up city that emerges on the river's banks. This year, a group of 50 Harvard researchers from departments as diverse as the medical school to the divinity school travel to Allahabad to take a closer look at the festival, which only happens once every 12 years, and to study issues ranging from sanitation to electricity grids to nightlife. One of the members of Harvard's Mapping the Kumbha Mela project is Nicholas Roth, a graduate student in South Asian Studies, who is here with us in the studio today. Nicholas, welcome to Veritalk. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start us off by telling us how you got interested in this project? My interest in this particular project actually grew out of taking class on this particular event, on the Kumbh Mela, which was offered in, this, in the fall with, with this project as its, as its ultimate result sort of in mind. And that class in and itself was a collaboration between the design school and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So it was, and it was sort of thought of as a cross-disciplinary workshop, looking at the spiritual side with Professor Diana Eck from the Communion Study of Religion on the one side and Rahul Mehotra from the design school uh, looking at the planning and architectural aspects of the event. And the project is called Mapping the Kumbh Mela? The project is called Mapping the Kumbh Mela, which really comes out of that design side because temporary urbanism or the pop-up city is one of the I guess, main research areas of Professor Mehotra at the moment. And I think really what spiked his interest in this particular event for him and for his for his part of the the part of the team that he put together and that he sort of administered even while we were there, the main idea really was to to map the event in both in the most literal sense of a map of how how is it set up, how does this city function in terms of layout, but also in a, in a more ab- abstract sense of how do goods flow in and out of it, how do people flow in and out of it, and circulate within within the campgrounds and so on and so forth. Before we get into specifics about what you guys were studying there, um, let's step back and, and talk a little bit about the festival itself. Uh, how long has it been running? That's hard to say. There are claims from sort of the local administration and, and the local tourist industry and so and, and stakeholders of that sort that it's been there for as long as human history almost. It's certain there certainly is a a winter fair called the Magmela, Mag being the the month of the Hindu calendar that that this festival falls in, that has been around in Allahabad for a very long time, which was referenced by early medieval Buddhist pilgrims and has been referenced pretty consistently in uh, textual sources in various languages through through the last almost 2,000 years of Indian history. So as best as we can tell, what was the originary function of this festival? How did it begin? Part of these fairs historically has usually been um, trade 
in the sense that they were they were commercial fairs as well as religious fairs, uh, and that certainly was very prevalent at um, at one of the other sites of the Kumela on its on its sort of circle of cities where it takes place, where it was a big cattle market. In Allahabad, that doesn't seem to have been ever in the foreground. At least uh, we have no record of it. It appears the main focus appears to have always been the the religious one, since the site itself seen as very sacred since it's the the city is located literally within the confluence of of the sacred rivers Yamuna and Ganga mm. and why is that seen as especially sacred in the Hindu religion it's seen as especially sacred because the two rivers um the two rivers in and of self are sacred are seen and are seen as goddesses uh, which have the power to um to revive and to um to wash away sin and in this particular place you have those two deified waters joining and on top of that the mythology uh, also claims that a third river that is not visible joins them at the same time so it's a it's a triveni a, a confluence of three or a braid of three which is particularly auspicious and that third river also is um is identified with the deity it's identified with the goddess of knowledge saraswati and is while there's some debate over whether whether the sort of historic literary references to that river are based on an actual river that dried up or changed mm. course, whether it was actually ever at this site, if it did exist, is a yet another debate. But because of that, it it's sort of about as holy as water can get. So for the pilgrims who come, is the primary religious event taking a dip in, in the rivers? Yes, that's generally understood what it is to be about for virtually any pilgrimage associated with the sacred rivers and, and there are many of them in India, the, the Ganga or Ganges just generally being the most important of them. That is sort of the, the main element or the, the binding element of the, of the pilgrimage experience is the, is the, the holy bath in the river. And at this event, clearly it's the, it's the focal point. And because even though the event itself lasts 55 days, there are five so-called royal bathing days, Shahi Snans, that are, um, that are seen as particularly auspicious, that coincide with particular holidays. Um, and, on th- and those are really the days where, where by far the most people want to bathe. And that's where you get the really massive crowd. So those, those gigantic numbers that are, that are commonly cited and, and um, that make it the largest human gathering in the world uh, really refer to to the sort of total numbers when you uh, count up visitors during those particularly auspicious days and just over the course of the of the roughly month and a half long period. Um, How far are people coming from if they come for just one well, or two days? From Harvard, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly from a huge swath of north and central India. So someone might travel for at least as long as they're actually at the festival. Yes. Although um, the other thing is that. Um, why people might be at the actual fair for a comparatively short time, if uh, a lot of people seem to combine it with visiting other pilgrimage sites. Our team, actually, or part of our team, uh, spent the, the first of the, of the Shahi Snan days, the first of the really, really auspicious bathing days, in Varanasi, or Benares, another very sacred city on, on the Ganga, uh, one which, when this fair isn't, taking place is actually much more sacred and much bigger of a pilgrimage site than Allahabad. And the day after this particular holiday, Makar Sankranti, that this uh, royal bath falls on, this, the, the ranks of pilgrims in that city just exploded because a lot of pilgrims who'd gone to take the bath in uh, Allahabad on that holiday 
then on their way back to wherever you know they might be returning to would also hit up all the holy the sacred sites in Varanasi and other people might be going to Ayodhya or or other other sacred or historically important sites in in that general area of the country. I'm interested in the logistics of having, I mean, on the holiest day, having 30 million people both come to a place, you know, that must completely overwhelm the transit system or however they're getting there. And then how do you organize that many people, you know, peacefully taking uh, a bath in a river all at the same time? I mean, just from the outside, it seems like an absolute um, logistical nightmare. Ecological nightmare, too. It is, it is both. Um, it is definitely an ecological nightmare, and that's it's been a topic of discussion for a long time in Silis, and that's what uh, actually a lot of the GSAS students in our, in our group, and as well as some undergrads who traveled with us, were looking at sanitation and, and, and issues of sanitation and ecology and environmentalism around this event. And obviously the logistical aspect is, is one of the things that um, was interesting interesting for the urban planning group. And it, it's interesting because historically it, it has been a huge issue. Um, this event, especially the Allahabad iteration of it, has again and again produced massive stampedes. The worst of which was in um, 1956, I want to say. In any case, in the 50s was the first one in Allahabad after independence and about a thousand people died in a stampede. This year so far, um, there was one stampede at, um, um, with, I think, 40 dead at the Allahabad railway station. So those are the sort of failings of, of, of dealing with it. But it's, it's interesting because on this, this tends to happen on these really big bathing days. The rest of the time, and that's what we experienced because we were there in between bathing days, it's actually not as overwhelming as one would think it is. It certainly is. The, the festival area, the campground, is massive and I think that helps a lot. So the funny thing about pilgrimages is that these ostensibly religious events often become incredibly libidinal events, right? We see this in, in Chaucer where the pilgrims are clearly all there for re- reasons that have very little to do with religion. We see this uh, in the, the Hajj in Islam where uh, the sites of pilgrimage are ringed with these incredibly opulent you know, shopping malls basically. So as, as you saw it, what portion of this festival was religious and what was sort of devoted to the, the pleasures of the flesh? Two are very hard to separate out. I think both are really present throughout. And I think there's there's not really a, a, a hypocrisy or contradiction about that for most of the uh, devotees who come. I mean, they come and I think they, there's a legitimate belief in, in the, you know, spiritual or, or devotional value of, you know, coming to see this, taking, going and to take your bath in the river, to go to the, you know, temples in the area and so on and so forth, to go and talk to the religious teachers. Uh, who set up camp to perhaps do some volunteer work, but at the same time, it I think it's it's just as integral a part of the experience for them to, you know, see people from other parts of the country and from other parts of the world. I mean, I think we uh, as a as a clearly foreign group walking around certainly became an attraction um, for a lot of people, and and uh, people want to take pictures of us. People wanted to take pictures with us. People wanted us to take their picture constantly. And I mean, this is something you encounter in India a lot in general, but at this event it was clearly heightened and it was clearly in the sort of festival mode of we're all here to experience something new and different and have fun. So when you show up, I'm just you know curious how the, the sort of tent arrangements work. Um, if you show up from one part of India, do you set up tent next to your buddies from the same region? Do people meet each other? 
um, who don't know each other from different places? Do there, you there seem to be, call your friends and see what they There seem are? to be various modes of that. Um, so the most of the land is given out to religious organizations. And if you belong to that organization, then you'll be quartered there. So that's first and foremost of the, these orders of ascetics or akharas. Uh, so those are those are the organizations of the sadhus, the the naked ascetics that, that end up in all the pictures of the event that one might see in newspapers and so on and so forth. They tend to have the prime real estate in a sense right at the at the confluence, and they will house their members as well as um, sort of lay people who are doing some sort of community service or who or fulfilling a vow or whatever by um, serving them, by cooking for them, by cleaning for them, and so on. And, you came as part of this research group mapping the Kumbh Mela, but I, I wonder what you specifically were studying there. So I, for my part, was looking at, um, as part of that sort of environmental subset, I was looking at environmental and developmental organizations active at the, at the Mela who are using trees as the sort of focal point of their work. The, an idea from this came from um, sort of my observations and my on studies of the importance of trees in um, in a lot of sort of everyday uh, Hindu devotional practice all over India, really, or at least anywhere in India I've been. There, there are many species of trees that are very common, of which you will not see a specimen without some sort of veneration going on around it, uh, ranging from full-blown temples at the at the base of the tree to you know people just dabbing some red paint on it or, or hanging a garland on it every so often. Are people worshipping the trees uh, in and of themselves or as a representation of something else? Both takes place. I mean, generally it's the association of the tree with um, one of the sort of canonical deities. They're, so different trees being associated with different um, with different deities or being considered dear to particular deities. But there also are a lot of local cults of tree deities which are then often sort of identified with the canonical deities, but which originally clearly are um, just the, the spirit of that tree. So how did this tree worship operate uh, within the Kumbh Mela? So, I mean, that's what I was, the sacredness attached to trees and, and therefore the notion of protecting trees is something that, um, that has made its way into the discourse of, of Indian environmentalism a lot. And, and, and because there's this campaign from various quarters to you know, make this very ecologically disruptive event more eco-friendly, and as well as to you know, really use it as a platform to, to try and, and tell people to take better care of these two rivers, because both of these two rivers that it's you know, centered around and that are sacred are an ecological disaster because they, they supply the water as well as drain the, the effluence of almost all of North India. So when you were there, were you uh, talking about trees with people, or were there actual specific trees you were you were looking at? A little bit of both. Um, so one of the other big religious sites of, of Allahabad actually is a, um, a sacred banyan tree uh, called the immortal banyan tree, Akshayavat, that is at the in the fort that's at the edge of the of the Mela grounds and has a temple around it. Um, and there are others. So I so I did observe things like that, and 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 that temple compound has become a part of it. It's usually closed off because the army has control of that of that fort. But for the mela, they've opened it up so pilgrims could could pay reverence to this tree. So that was sort of one angle. On the other side, we went and talked to some organizations, such as, um, for example, one um, the Ganga Action Parivar, 
which was started by a, by a Swami, um, Swami Chidananda Saraswati, who, um, who's a big environmental activist in his home state, which is where the Ganga originates. And he set up his, his the, the whole sort of tenor, tone and tenor of his camp was how to make this Skumela more environmentally friendly. Uh, so one of the things he he's, his organization is about to do is give out a million tree seed, tree saplings during the course of this event. And um, so at two all pilgrims, two pilgrims, um, and and at one event for, that we attended with him, where we had various you know functionaries of of state governments and whatnot as as guests of honor, um, he sort of initiated that by you know. Giving a, giving each a tree sapling and and declaring it a um, a sacred offering, um, and was, which is which is again tying it into sort of Hindu ritual practice where worshiping a, a deity you give um, a sacrificial offering usually of food um, or flowers and and or flowers and um, and it's devoted to the deity and thought thought that the deity partakes of it but then you give it it's given back to you or it's distributed back out to the faithful as a blessing. And do these ecological groups seem to be making much headway? That's something that's uh, that's debatable. They're certainly, um, I think, getting better and better at getting themselves in the news. And he, his group is very well, um, I think, very well intentioned and fairly well organized and well funded. But part of that is the fact that it's very, very popular with foreign devotees, mm. uh, which I think, to some degree, undercuts its its effectiveness at the actual site and with the sort of mass of people that are, are the ones that really, you know, need to, to imbibe this message for it to have any effect, because that's not the audience that he's reaching at this point, I think. Hmm. Okay, thank you very much. We've spent the, the last 20 minutes discussing uh, an ancient and sacred festival, and now we're going to switch to a decidedly less divine focus of veneration, Indian soap operas. Um, so, Nicholas, you have admitted to being a big fan, um, so we hope that you can share your appreciation with those of us who have not yet had the pleasure of seeing a single episode. Um, Nicholas, what's your favorite Indian soap opera? My favorite soap opera, at least for the time being, is one called Ispiarko Kya Namdu, uh, which roughly translates to What Should I Call This Love? Um, what Should I Call This Love? Yes. Oh, um, most of the titles are, are of that sort. <laughs> A lot of people that watch these shows will probably be currently giving the same answer. It um, it was one of the one, probably the most popular uh, Hindi language serial uh, of the last two years. Um, what makes it so popular? That's an interesting question. It um, to my knowledge, it's the first that sort of generated the a fandom in sort of Western terms of that. And I think I think part of it was the fact that it was just very lighthearted. I mean, most of these. You know the storylines tend to be very ex- extreme and unrealistic, and this one did have that. It did have the intrigue and everything, but by and large, m- almost all the characters, except for the villain, were uh, likable to some degree. So, and what's the story? It's sort of an opposites attract story. It's about a very rich, bitter atheist guy, and <laughs> uh, and this sort of um, somewhat naive goody two shoes girl that's also a bit of a busybody from a um from a middle class family and uh that keep running into each other for no real reason um and cannot stand each other (laughs) uh and obviously they're fated to to end up together um and then they're the you know the trials and tribulations of their um extended families and as they Become more and more entwined. She eventually ends up working for his family, and and his his sister and grandmother clearly want her to be the daughter-in-law. But he's dating this modern girl that they don't approve of. 
So what do you what do you and enjoy watching in the? I I think they're for as as sort of a, a, a shallow form of entertainment as as a lot of people I think take them to be. There is so much in these shows, apart from the fact that you know they just have beautiful visuals because everyone's beautiful and constantly decked out as if they're getting married. They have a very particular aesthetic to them, which I think um, draws in in an interesting mixture of sort of Western and Indian art forms. They also really deal with the sort of um, the issues or, or the um, the hot topics of um, contemporary India in, in an interesting manner. I mean, this because it's so lighthearted and, and generally more of a romantic comedy, this serial wasn't so heavy on that. But even there, you would have, um, you would have episodes, for example, that were basically, uh, through all of that, were ma- trying to make the claim that one shouldn't demand dowry, that that's a social ill. Hmm. Um, you have other darker serials that um, pick up on all kinds of, of issues that are that are issues in, still in, in certain quarters of Indian society, such as widow remarriage or people that haven't been married um, getting married in older age. So if you were to recommend one uh, Indian soap opera to begin with for our listeners, what would you recommend? I think that one's actually a, uh, a really good one since it's so lighthearted and and it just and, and it just finished it, it ran for two years which is typical they they follow a similar pattern as latin american telenovelas and that they're not interminable like american soap operas good well that's about all the time we have but thank you nicholas so much for for joining us thanks for talking to me and thanks as always laura thank you nick thank you nicholas Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and to our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.